Have you ever started something and then had to start over because you messed it up? <laughs> I wrote that sentence a long time ago, Rose. True story. Have you ever started something and then had to start over because something was messed up? After Christmas, we bought this little basketball goal for the kids, and I thought I'd do the manly thing and stay up really late one night after the kids were in bed, go outside. It was like 13 degrees below zero, and I was going to put it together in the dark and the cold, and there I was out there. I felt just really you know, like a, a great father, and I get it almost done. Uh, when I thought I was almost done, though, I, I raised it up, and I realized that I'd put the backboard on backwards so that the goal faced the wrong way. And getting the backboard on was the hardest part. It took it forever to get the backboard on the pole. And so I felt like a huge deflated balloon. Just I, I wanted to just give up and throw the thing away, and the kids would never even know, right? <laughs> There's going to be a surprise for them the next morning. It taken so much effort, so long to get that far. So when I realized I'd put it on wrong, it was quite discouraging. So whether it's a basketball goal or maybe for you it's been a research project or a flower bed you were building, a long email you had composed, maybe you're rebuilding an old car, an old computer. Sometimes things go bad and get messed up and we have to start over. In the text we're going to study this morning, Genesis 6, 1 through 8, we're going to see that the good world that God created became so bad that God decided to start over. So Genesis chapter 6 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, there are black pew Bibles in front of you. I think it's page 3 or 4. Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8, we're studying Genesis here in our church, bit by bit, chapter by chapter. What we're going to see in this text this morning is why God decided to flood the entire earth. The next four chapters are the flood narrative. Not Noah's flood, but God's flood. Noah was the guy on the boat. The guy doing the flooding was God. So for four chapters, we're going to read about this, this event. The way it's introduced, though, is these eight verses at the, the top of chapter 6. The first eight verses tell us why the next four chapters happen. So chapter 6, 1 through 8 is where we're going to be. These verses tell us that God decided to destroy the world because the world was destroying itself. That the world was self-destructing. But here's the amazing thing about this text. When God saw how bad things were on the good world He'd made, He actually made two decisions. He made a decision to first destroy the world and then secondly, to deliver the world. He decided to judge the world and save the world. God does two things in this text. One through seven, we're going to see about his decision to judge and destroy the world. But then in verse eight, we will see about his decision to save and deliver the world. Now, as we've been studying through Genesis, you might remember last week in chapter 5, verse 29, there was this prophecy of Noah. Look at 529. Lamech, Noah's dad, says he calls his son's name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So there's this 
this note of optimism, this hope, this Noah who will bring relief. But then we get to chapter 6, instead of humanity being comforted by Noah, humanity is going to need to be saved by Noah. These first seven verses of chapter 6 tell us just how bad things had become and what God decides to do about it. Then verse 8 is going to tell us that God nonetheless is going to use a man named Noah to initiate his plan to save the world. Again, here's the main point of this text. Genesis 6, 1-8 tells us that God responds to a world drowning in sin with judgment and grace. Can I say that again? This is the main point of our text and our message. God responds to a world drowning in sin with judgment and grace. We have to hit both notes or we'll sing the Christian message out of tune. Some really prefer the judgment piece. Some might really prefer the grace piece. Interestingly, the Bible tells us both are true all over the place, including here in this text. Noah's world was darkening, so judgment was, was decreed. Our world is darkening, and judgment has been decreed. Rose just read it. The, word, the world, it literally said, did you hear? The world will, will burn. It was once baptized with water. It will again be baptized with fire. Judgment has been decreed, but into Noah's dark world and into our dark world, grace has come. Judgment is coming, but grace comes first. So let's go through this text bit by bit. We'll start in verse 1. I'll actually go ahead and read the whole text. It's a short text, and then we'll go through it bit by bit. So let's just read 6, 1 through 8. Genesis Chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man, of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You may be thinking, John, this is the Easter text you picked? <laughs> here's, here's, the, here's what I want to say. Every text in the Bible points to Jesus Christ. It points to his life and work. At the very end, I'm going to try to connect the dots between what happens here and what happened on the first Easter Sunday morning. But first, let's go through this text bit by bit. Verse 1 says that mankind began to multiply in the face of the land. Notice, if you're 
translation has paragraphs. The next paragraph begins in verse 5, and it talks about wickedness multiplying and becoming great in the land. It's no coincidence that these two thoughts, verse 1 and verse 5, both begin by saying that man multiplied and then wickedness multiplied. The multiplication of people results in the multiplication of evil. Moses is pointing out the simple fact that as mankind increased, wickedness increased. And we see this today. We see this in our cities. As cities tend to be places where sin flourishes. Of course, all people everywhere are sinners. I'm from the country. People in the country tend to look down on people in the city. People in the city tend to look down on people in the country. The reality is we're all the same inherently. Like we're all made in the image of God and we're all sinners. What I'm saying is in cities, there are larger numbers of people concentrated in smaller areas. So because cities have more people, cities will inevitably have a greater concentration of sin and temptation. This means, by the way, for those who follow Jesus and live in cities like ours, that joining and participating in the life of a local church is all the more important. The only way we'll survive in an ocean of corruption is to join other believers on islands of light and salt. We call these islands local churches. So the question isn't, do you go to church, but rather, are you vitally connected to a church? You see, the church is a family, not an event. A worshiping community, not a content provider. Now, if you don't want to join this church, that's fine. There are dozens of gospel preaching churches just in this area. Praise the Lord. The only way we'll survive in this ocean of corruption is if we get on an island with other brothers and sisters in Christ and do life together. Man multiplied, evil multiplied. Verse 2, we're going to come to one of those perplexing questions in the Bible. And I know some of you are thinking, I can't wait to hear what John says about verse 2. Well, I'm just going to warn you, you're going to be sorely disappointed. The question, though, let's just look at it. The, question, the, the text says the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives and they chose. The question is, who are these people? Who are the sons of God marrying the daughters of men? Well, there's three main options. It could be that the sons of God are renowned kings and famous rulers. Secondly, they could be fallen angels that took a physical form and engaged in sexual activity with women. Thirdly, they could be descendants of the line of Seth, which we studied last week. Men from the godly line of Seth who intermarried with women from the ungodly line of Cain. To me, either of the last two options seem best. The option I lean toward is, the, is that the sons of God are the godly sons of Seth. This is never a question that Christians should, should divide over. Good godly Bible scholars disagree on this. It shouldn't break our fellowship. I lean towards the godly line of Seth approach for lots of reasons. If you want to ask me about all the reasons afterwards, feel free to come and, and, uh, and ask me about it. Mainly, it's because, as we'll see in this text, the judgment that comes, it says repeatedly, comes on man, not on angels. The problem is what men were doing with these women. So it seems that it's these godly sons of Seth who were marrying, marrying into the ungodly line, the daughters of man or the daughters of Cain. 
But notice, and I'm so glad that Mason pointed this out to me this week. Thank you, brother. Moses actually doesn't really tell us anything. <laughs> he doesn't explain. He feels no need to explain who these people are. To his original audience, they already knew. They would have known. He didn't have to explain. The point that Moses is making is that though this wasn't the only sin in the ancient world, it was a leading cause of the corruption that filled the earth. So whether the sons of God are Sethites or demonic human creatures, the point is that mankind is jacked up. <laughs> the point is that mankind, men and women, are beyond self-help. Now, if the interpretation I lean to is correct, then it says something about how damaging it is when the people of God marry the enemies of God. By the way, what I'm about to say applies even if my interpretation isn't correct. Christians should not marry non-Christians. 2 Corinthians 6, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Satan? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're wanting to get married, about to get married, think you might get married one day, if you don't share the most important thing together, it will be very hard to share just about everything else together. If your house isn't built on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ, the house will be unsteady. So, brothers and sisters, if you're considering marrying someone, you become a fruit inspector. A fruit inspector. Not, not, like you're, not like you're the Holy Spirit and you can see into everybody's heart and you're God and you can judge. No, but literally you need to just start looking and listening and observing the kinds of questions you need to be asking, the kinds of things you need to be looking for. Is, does this man, does this woman love the church or just go to church? Do they love Jesus or kind of know about Jesus? Do they love the Bible or do they just kind of know some Bible verses? Do they... Just know that sin is bad, or do they want to kill sin? And this takes time. This is a process. This is not a one-time conversation at Starbucks. It's not like, hey, do you love the church? Yeah, I love the church. Great. What church are you a member of? Well, I'm not really a member. I kind of just go here, go there. Just start, start the conversation. Folding other trusted friends into the process of discernment is crucial because we don't see things objectively. One of our former pastors used to always say, the problem with blind spots is that you can't see them. <laughs> this is the second most important decision you'll ever make in your life outside of following Jesus Christ. Fold other people into the process. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, there's safety in many counselors, people who know you and love you, people you trust. Don't make this decision alone. Christians should not intermarry with non-believers. Now, God's reaction to what was happening here, regardless of the interpretation we take of who they were, God's reaction is the same. His reaction starts to unfold in verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So after the intermarriage of the sons of God with the daughters of man, God is... Says plainly, he says that this state of affairs is not going to prevail. So he limits man's days to 120 years. This is significant because if you remember last week in chapter 5, these guys were living to like eight, 900 years old. So this is quite the lifespan change. 
And even with this, we see mercy, though. Think of it. 120 years is still quite a long time. It's a long time that the Lord is giving men and women made in His image to repent, to come to Him. As Rose read, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That means, brother or sister, if you know someone who's far from God, God wants to save them. Some of you are like, I don't know, that just blew up my theology. This 2 Peter 3 text says that God desires the unrepentant to repent. So keep praying, keep sharing, keep loving, keep doing hospitality, keep welcoming, keep embracing them in Jesus' name and see what happens. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not following Jesus yet, we're so glad you're here. You're welcome to gather with us every single time we meet. The good news is that God is patient towards you. The good news is that God doesn't kill any of us on the spot the first time we break His commands. He actually wants us to come. Did you know that? Did you know that, friend, that God wants you to come into His family? <laughs> he, it says that's the desire. He wants you. He wants you to come on in. He's better than your sin. He's better than the life you've tried to build for yourself. He loves you. He will be a good father to you if you'll have him. But as verse 3 says, there, there, is, there, there does come a point where there's a line in the sand with the Spirit of God. It says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. God won't abide with sinners who don't repent forever. Judgment will come for all who persist in their rebellion. Now, let's move into verse 4, uh, which gives us another interpretive difficulty. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Who are these guys? Maybe your translation says giants. The old KJV says giants. The giants were in the land, the Nephilim. Well, interestingly, again, Moses doesn't tell us. <laughs> he just says it and just moves on. Why? Because he expects his original readers to know who they are. He doesn't have to explain it. This verse is like a little footnote supplying us with some extra information that's not pertinent to the main point of the narrative. What Moses, I think, is trying to do is demythologize these guys. See, there was the, the, uh, the prevalent idea that there was these, these superhuman, maybe divine human giants who lived in the world. And many thought that they were, you know, the offspring of angels and women. I think what Moses is doing is saying, no, 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 no. They're not the offspring of, of angels and women. That's not who these guys were. Look at the text. It says they were in the earth, they were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. So they were already in the earth. And they were on the earth later. They were probably giants who were on the earth before the flood and after the flood. Numbers 13:33 talks about the son, sons of Anak. These giants, you know, Israel go, the spies go up to the promised land. They, they see these giants, they're like, nope, we're like grass, uh, grasshoppers, we're out of here. <laughs> Because these, these giants were in the land. Because Moses doesn't spend much more time on them, neither will I. Verse 5 is one of the clearest statements in the Bible about our human nature. Look at verse 5 again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What I love about the Bible is its honesty. You see, if the Bible were a man-made document, verses like this wouldn't be in it. See, we prefer to make ourselves look good, to kind of cover up our wickedness, cover up the things we prefer no one to know, and promote our righteousness, promote how great we are. The Bible just says the exact opposite. Nope, we're all evil. The Bible literally says, even the one writing it says, everyone has an evil heart all the time. I think this upholds and confirms the Bible's veracity, its truthfulness. This verse tells us that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is why the, the, the mantra of our age, of kind of follow your heart, is not good advice. <laughs> Our heart lies to us. This is why we need the church. We need friends in Christ to help us see ourselves and see what we're doing. According to the Bible, mankind is devolving, not evolving. There's no day off for the evil human heart. Only evil continually. You're like, John, I had a pretty good day yesterday. Great, I did too. I had loved my time with my family. We had an Easter egg hunt, and kids were going crazy, and it was amazing. I ate all their candy last night while they, when they went to bed. Not all of it, okay? Just the stuff I hope they don't like. <laughs> but what this text gets at is that there's a disease in us that doesn't go away ever until we reach glory. Everything we do is tainted with evil, sin, and wickedness. Even our righteousness, the Bible says, is like filthy rags. Why? Because it's tainted with selfishness. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, that we can't do anything good in this world. It doesn't mean that, like, when you're serving the Lord, uh, you, you're, you're doing something that is bad. <laughs> you know, stop serving because you can't serve with pure motive, so just stop serving. No, that's not what it means. It just means that we need to be humble about our motives. We need to be honest about our hearts. We need to pray continually for God to cleanse our hearts. And I love Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is total depravity. Not that man is as bad as they could be, because there is common grace and restraining grace, but that we are evil to the core. Yes, we're made in God's image, but we're also fallen in sin. These two things are true about every human on planet Earth. Made in the beautiful image of God and fallen in sin. And again, I think a lot of us might lean towards one truth over the other when we're discipling, when we're evangelizing, when we're thinking. But the Bible says both. Every person you know has inherent dignity and should be treated as such. And every person you know is fallen in sin. And needs a new heart. That's why this verse is actually very freeing. This verse says that politics or politicians or money or church or, you know, generosity, none of that stuff is going to change us. What, what, what we need is heart surgery. The only thing that will change us is a new heart, which, by the way, is what Jesus or God in Jesus promises to give us in the new covenant. He says, I'm going to take away your your stony heart, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a new heart that beats with love for God and people. 
So the good news is that this verse actually points us to the grace of God. This verse tells us that we can't work ourselves into God's favor. This verse tells us that we can't just change our behavior and be good with God. You're like, John, I used to do this stuff, you know, I drank too much and I was just kind of doing whatever and now I don't, so, you know, I'm just, I'm a Christian now. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says you need a new heart, a new, a new affections, new dreams and ambitions for Christ and His glory that start to permeate everything you do. New hatred for sin and love for the church. This is good news because it frees us from trying to do it ourselves and just let sets us free and leads us to cling to the cross and beg for mercy. Now, let's also just note, by the way, before we go on, that this verse applies to Noah also. Moses tells us about the human condition, including, and this includes, the human Noah. We know that from chapter 8, verse 21. After the flood subsides, it says in verse 21, uh, God says, I will never curse the ground again because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So after the flood, man's heart was the same. God still says that the human heart is evil. Noah isn't absolved from the sinfulness of humanity. He needs what everyone else needs. Now as we move into verse 6, please pay attention. Careful attention to verse 6. It tells us a lot about God. What does this state of affairs do in the heart of God? We, we've just read what's happening in the heart of man. Well, as God looks on, what's happening in his heart? Look at it again, verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That word grieved is the same Hebrew word used in 3.16 for the woman's pain in childbearing, 3.17 for the man's pain in working the ground. In other words, the sin of man pained God. Yes, our sin affects us. Our sin affects people around us. We all know that. But your sin affects God. If you don't have room in your theology... For a God who grieves over your sin, then keep reading this verse and pray the Lord shows you how the Lord feels about your sin. I wonder, when was the last time you thought about how God feels about your sin? A lot of times we just, we're, we're kind of sorry that we did it. We wish we wouldn't have done it, said it, thought it, whatever. We're going to try again better. You know, we hope we don't get caught. This verse is showing us that in those moments, God, the God of heaven and earth, is pained in his heart, the core of his being. He's not just sitting kind of idly by like, all right, blew it again. Get over yourself. It says he's grieved. Now, let's dive into this text just a bit more. It inevitably brings up a couple of questions. We'll just spend a few moments on this. If you want to dig deeper into these questions, I can point you to some resources afterwards. But this text brings up two questions. Does God grieve like us, and does God change his mind like us? Does God grieve like us, and does God change his mind like us? Does God have emotions, and does God change? You're like, John, I don't really know. What, I've never really envisioned God feeling things. Okay, that's fine. 
uh, let's address that. Does God feel things and does God change? The short answer is yes. <laughs> yes, he has emotions, but then no, he doesn't change. Yes, he feels things. No, he doesn't change. Scripture portrays God as able to feel emotions like joy, disgust, jealousy, anger, grief, compassion, on and on we could go. God, in other words, is so beautiful. Just think of it. God is responsive to his creatures. He's not just coldly standing by. He's responsive to who he made, what he made. He feels something about what's happening in his world. For more on this, and how this was displayed in the life of Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you to read Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. You're like, I already read it, John. Read it again. Uh, no, especially go to the chapter, The Emotional Life of Christ. Ortland reminds us in that chapter that Jesus was perfectly human. And what's part of human nature? Emotions. Look, I get it, man. I'm super, which one's the analytical brain? Is that right or left? I get them mixed up. I'm super analytical. Some of you got, like, there with me. Some of you over here on the other side, left brain, right, whatever. The thing about Jesus is he held both intention perfectly. His emotions and his thoughts were pure and perfect and deep and profound. Sin has tainted our emotions, but not Jesus's. Brothers and sisters, if you ever wonder, like, man, what, is, what does Jesus feel? What does Jesus feel about me? Just read the Gospels and notice, notice how he interacts with sinners. Read the Gospels. Notice how he interacts with people on the margins, people cast aside. Just notice how he deals with people. Now, it's interesting that his anger is provoked by what? Self-righteousness. The Pharisees, those who thought they had it all together and didn't need help from anyone. Jesus rages at those guys. But to the hurting, the broken, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the woman caught in adultery, on and on we could go, to the lame and the blind and the weak, he moves towards them with compassion. He feels something in his being towards those types of people. So yes, God feels emotion. But this leads us to the second question, does God change his mind? It says there, Verse 6, the Lord was sorry it made man on the earth. Maybe your version says that he regretted making man on the earth. Then you will, We'll read texts like this, though, in Numbers 23. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. So, no, God doesn't change his mind. But you're like, John, it says right there, he was sorry, or he regretted. What, what do you mean? He, he's sorry, but he doesn't change his mind. Well, there's a really helpful passage. I'm not going to have us turn there, but later. Read 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. In that text, it says that the Lord regretted making Saul. But then later in that text, it says that he doesn't regret like a man. He doesn't regret like a man. He regrets, but not the way we do. See, we say, if I had that to do over again, man, I'd do it differently. God never wishes he would have done it differently. He doesn't wish he would have done anything differently. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't grieve. He doesn't change like man, but he's not a block of wood. He's not a stone wall who doesn't engage and interact with people. Yes, he's eternal and outside of time. And yes, he interacts with people in an, in, in, in an authentic way. 
So God does not change and God does feel emotions. He's not a stoic sovereign or a mechanical mover. He's not in heaven just moving chess pieces around. He's not immune to the sin and suffering of the world. Do you remember, brothers and sisters, do you remember what Jesus did when he approached Jerusalem the last week of his life, right before Palm Sunday? He comes up to the city and what happens? The floodgates open. It says he wept over Jerusalem. All these people who were about to kill him, he wept. Remember what happens when his best friend or one of his good friends, Lazarus, dies? Jesus wept. Brothers and sisters, remember that our Lord has not changed. The resurrection teaches us, among other things, that He's in heaven. He's raised, ascended, reigning, and the same. So as we observe His life on the earth, we can, we can guarantee that His life, His heart, beats the same way now. He didn't have like a heart change when He got back to the throne. His heart beats for sinners and sufferers. He weeps. He feels something for us. We have to hold these, guys, these things uh, uh, in tension, guys. We, we've got to both say that God is immutable, unchanging, and that God is impassable or impassioned. He feels things. He never regrets and he grieves. We're up against a mystery here. Our God transcend, transcends us. It turns out we can't get all our logic around him. And if we could, what kind of God would he be? In Scripture, we learn that he accommodates himself to our finite capacities. We learn that he is above time and actively engaged with people in time. Verse 7 tells us what God decides to do in light of what he's seen of the corruption on the earth. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Interesting that that phrase is repeated twice, verse 6 and verse 7. I am sorry, I am grieved, I am pained at what has happened. And, and by the way, it's not just that the Lord is like an overly emotional junior high kid. No offense if you're in junior high. What, what happens is the Lord made everything good and beautiful and perfect. So what, what happens when you make something and then it's ruined? You don't just like shrug your shoulders and walk away, right? You feel something. Maybe it starts with rage and then grief, and sadness, a range of emotions. So when God looks at what, what He created to be good and beautiful and right, He looks at what is now tainted and perverted and corrupt and wicked to the core. He feels something. Twice it says that. Don't miss the heart of God, the broken heart of God towards what He has made. Verse 7 says that judgment is coming on the earth, but then verse 8 says that grace gets there first. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This might remind you of Ephesians 2. Remember Ephesians 2, 1? All are dead in their trespasses and sins. You know, and then verse, I think it's 4. But God in mercy sends Christ. Sin, then grace. Judgment, 
and grace. Favor here in verse 8 can be translated as the word grace. It really is just the word grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now we might come to verse 9 next week and think, well, John, you said Noah received grace, but I don't know. Look at verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So verse 9 might lead us to suppose that Noah was favored by God because he was an awesome guy. He walked with God. He was righteous. He was even blameless. But remember, verse 5 applies to Noah too. His heart is evil like everyone else's. The reason verse 9 is true is because verse 8 is true. Grace is the only reason Noah gets on the boat. The Lord sovereignly chooses to give him grace. Noah's a trophy of God's grace, a diamond of grace in a coal mine of corruption. In him, the Lord is screaming to us that he hasn't given up on the human race. There's still one who's found favor or grace in his eyes. He walks with God because he received grace from God. This is why I'm increasingly convinced that I don't care much about what people say, but about what they do. If you've received the grace of God, your life just starts to bubble with change. Slowly, but surely, those who find favor know they don't deserve anything but wrath and damnation, but they find favor at the cross. They find forgiveness and acceptance and grace in Christ. They, all of a sudden, slowly start to change. Start to put sin to death. Start to love the church. Start to love their neighbors. Start to love their enemies. The gospel doesn't say, hey, get your life together and then God will give you something. No, it says you have nothing. Just bring what you have, which is nothing, and Christ will bestow grace upon you and start to change everything. Some of you brothers, some of you, some of you need to feel the weight of this truth. God is pleased with you. God is pleased with you. If you're like, John, you don't know what I've done. You're right, I probably don't. Who, who knows what, what Noah was like before these verses? I mean, he lived like, I forget, 500-something years? He, he was verse 5. He had a heart like everybody else. Who knows what kind of guy he was, but he found favor. And then everything changed. So in these verses, we've seen that the world became so bad that God decided to start over. When God saw how bad things were, He made two decisions. He decided to judge the world and to save the world. He would judge the world through a flood. He would save the world through a man. God sets His favor upon a righteous man who would save the world through a wooden vessel. Of course, this narrative prepares us to meet another righteous man later in the Bible, a man who also passes through the waters of judgment and death on a wooden vessel only to emerge on the other side alive and victorious. Anyone know who I'm talking about? That would be the right time to say Jesus. Always the right answer. So God appoints Jesus as a new and true and better Noah who will pass through the waters of judgment and death on a wooden vessel, burst out the other side alive and victorious to save his people and remake the world. Now, I said we'd close by considering some of the implications from this text for the resurrection. What does this text teach us about the resurrection of Jesus? Well, it teaches us at least this. It shows us that though evil appears to be winning in the world, evil will not have the last word. 
in Noah's day, the world was so bad that God decided to cover the earth with water. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Evil wouldn't win the day. The waters wouldn't win the day. God would raise up a servant who would save his people. Now, brothers and sisters, doesn't it often appear that evil is winning in our lives, in our culture, maybe in our families? We hear, we watch, I hope you're watching, praying through the news about the war in Ukraine. Thank you, Jared, for praying for that. Man, just this week, there's, you're hearing these stories of the war crimes being committed, right? These horrible crimes. Men assaulting women, killing their husbands. That's evil. We should pray against that, that God would crush it. It often appears that evil is winning. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us that evil will not have the last word. Jesus died and rose in order to crush Satan, save his people, and remake the world. So his resurrection initiates a movement that will culminate in the banishing of all evil from the world. This is such good news for sinners and sufferers like us. The result of a world filled with Genesis 6-5 people is that we've all done evil things and had evil things done to us. The doctrine of sin doesn't just say that we have committed sin. It also says that we've been sinned against. Progressives tend to flatten out everything into the woundedness category, while fundamentalists tend to flatten everything into the sinfulness category. But the Bible says that our issues are a combination of sins and wounds and weaknesses. Everything is jacked up, including us. And Christ came to fix it all, to save us from our sins and to heal us and make us new. Do you believe that? The resurrection confirms it. See, if he didn't rise, what the heck are we even doing here? If he didn't rise, we're dead in our sins. We have no hope in this world. 1 Corinthians 15 says, people should make fun of us, we're, of all people, to be pitied. But if the resurrection is true, it means Jesus has the power to help us repent of our sin and the power to heal us at the most brokenness of our lives the point of the most brokenness in our lives. His resurrection guarantees that His, his work will win. If He made it through the flood of death, then He's on the loose, looking, gathering His lost and sinful and straying and hurting and broken people. By His Spirit and through His Word, He's saving sinners and binding up the brokenhearted. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you know that Jesus Christ has died on the cross. You know that He's risen from the dead, but you haven't trusted Him. Friend, this, this morning could be the day that you start a brand new life with Jesus Christ. That You put your hope and trust in Him. You embrace Him. And you let Him start to work His Resurrection power in your life. It doesn't mean we're changed instantly, does it? See, the thing about sinful and broken people is that we sin and, and we're broken. It means that things hurt. And it means that we do stupid stuff. We hurt people. 
And in that, God's heart is grieved. But what is amazing here is that God's heart towards His people doesn't change. Evil will not win. God will stick it out with His people. Weary friends, Jesus is alive and is coming soon. Run to Him. Confess your sin. Be honest about where you're at. Be honest about what you've done and about what's been done to you. Receive His grace. Trust His word. Turn away from your sins. Run to Him for healing. And if you do, you also will come through the floodwaters of death and judgment and land safely on the golden shores of His kingdom. Judgment is coming, but grace got here first, and His grace is available for everyone who knows they need it. Friends, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, you'd like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus Christ, to be a part of His faith family. Just grab the person next to you. (laughs) They'd love to talk to you more. Grab the person you came with. Grab me in the foyer. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please take your word and by your spirit help us to apply it, to love it, to trust it, to obey it. Lord, help us to be honest about where we are. Protect us from thinking too highly of ourselves and too lowly. The Every intention of our hearts is only evil continually and we've found favor in Jesus. Jesus Christ. God, help us to remember. Help us to remember. Help us to remember who we are today. And I pray that those who are far from you would run to you. They would run to the wooden vessel of Jesus' cross, cling to it, trust it, be saved from the coming judgment, be brought safely to your golden shores. Holy Spirit, please come do your work in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.